Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We're hoping that you are having a very blessed day. Remember to catch us right here every week on your favorite Catholic radio station. But if you do miss an episode, catch us online. Go to mncatholic.org slash podcast, where you will find our entire archive of about 100 episodes. Make sure to check all of it out. In today's episodes, we're talking about sex, gender, feminism, equal rights, legislation related thereto, and all from a Catholic perspective. We'll be speaking with Erica Bakiaki from the Ethics and Public Policy Center about these thorny questions. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about a bill that would provide undocumented immigrants the opportunity to become a licensed driver in Minnesota. And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can put your faith into action. In our bricklayer segment, we'll have details on how you can make your voice heard in defense of religious freedom and much more that is under attack by the federal proposed Equality Act. And listeners, maybe you have an idea for our bricklayer segment, or maybe it's just a question you have about faith and politics. Send those my way. You can shoot me an email, show at mncatholic.org, or you can leave us a comment on any of our social media channels. Just search for the Minnesota Catholic Conference. We're now blessed to be joined on the line today by Erica Bakiaki. She is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She specializes in equal protection jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, Catholic social teaching, and sexual ethics, and serves on the advisory board of the Common Good Project, the Catholic Women's Forum, and the Susan B. Anthony Birthplace Museum. She's co-founder of St. Benedict Classical Academy in Natick, Massachusetts, where she also served as president of the board. And she and her husband live outside of Boston and are the happy parents of seven children. Outstanding. Erica, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me. What compelled your interest in digging in and getting your fingernails dirty in the feminist scholarly literature? You're not one of a very few uh, group of select group of Catholic intellectuals who've done so. Uh, what inspired that? It's true. There aren't many of us who have the courage to go there, right? Um, actually, it's a pretty simple reason, and that is that well before my um, kind of reversion back to the Catholic Church, which is where I was baptized as an infant. After my mom married and divorced actually three times by the time I hit 19, when I went into college at Middlebury College, a very liberal school in Vermont, became very enamored with feminism and was one of the leaders of the Women's Center there at Middlebury for many years. And actually, interestingly enough, since he's been in the news in the last couple of years, I actually volunteered for Bernie Sanders one summer. So I was a women's studies minor for a while, and so I really spent a lot of time in kind of that worldview. And so when I came around, actually first to sort of question of abortion, and then finally came back to the church after several years of lots of reading and praying my way through from having kind of gone through the 12 steps in order to deal with the pain of my upbringing and some of the ways I acted out. I just really felt called to kind of be a bridge to those women who I think are very, many of whom are very well-intentioned, and men too call themselves, um, you know, feminists or secular feminists, and just need kind of a way back to what I very much regard as the truth about ourselves, you know, as equal in dignity as men and women, and also as called to live as God designed us to. And so really, I guess, to be a bridge back to feminists is why I started reading a lot of feminist legal literature. Actually, when my kids were very young, I would literally print out larvae articles and push them on the swing and read and underline. And, <laughs> and then I started to write. 
Well, that's an appropriate uh, frame of reference because we call this show The Bridge Builder. So Perfect. In, in, in your review of the literature, and I've heard you speak a number of times about these things, you have identified a lot of places of common ground. And we like to say we build common ground for the common good and that there are feminist perspectives out there. And there's some fault lines in the feminist movement itself that people might not know about that you've been helping us understand in some of your articles lately. But where where is the common ground for the common good uh, that you've seen in the feminist literature, and where might there be significant paths of divergence? So the really obvious common ground, and it's not with all feminists for sure, but it's with a group who call themselves care feminists or dependency feminists. And I would say those are up and against the autonomy feminists. And autonomy feminists have really won the day with kind of their herald, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, at the Supreme Court. But the care feminists and the dependency feminists are really kind of critical of the view that we you know, are sort of born as these autonomous beings. I'm not sure how that really works, and that's why they're critical of it, but that we're also sort of destined for or really desire as our end goal to be autonomous, really, you know, to be kind of dependent only on ourselves, responsible for ourselves, and that kind of thing. And that's where we really get to kind of abortion rights. We can get there, obviously. So that's where, you know, the care feminists have been really critical of that. And so I've re- learned a lot from, from them about that and sort of our duties of care uh, to one another. And it really stands together with just ideas of solidarity in, in the Catholic Church, where we very much go apart is absolutely with regard to abortion. And I've really tried to challenge some of the care feminists and will do so again, actually, in an upcoming event at the end of this month that feminists choosing Life of New York is hosting with two care feminists who are very, very well known, and then myself and another actually uh, law professor out there at St. Thomas Law, Elizabeth Schultz, the great Elizabeth Schultz. And so we'll come together for a conversation about that. But I think that's really the biggest fault line is abortion, but also with regard to the need for fathers to be very much involved with children. I think that they, a lot of feminists will say that they believe that, but you know, they also would seem to, you know, not prefer marriage, and especially, you know, marriage between men and women, obviously, and, and see gay marriage as something that's sort of equal. And I think, obviously, we would very much disagree with them on that as well. So we've seen the same thing here in the splits in feminism with the issue like surrogacy, for example, where you have one group of the autonomy feminists who want to say, nope, you know, women should be surrogate mothers, and that's part of their ability to contract and choose their body, how, use it how they see fit. But then you see another group of feminists who see this as sexual exploitation and commercialization of women. So it's, it's a fascinating split. And would you say that the care feminists really push back on this idea that equality equals sameness and the fact that there are differences in men and women and that care feminism is rooted in the idea that we need to support women in the way they're created and that they have the capacity for motherhood? Is that a a decent way of of making that distinction or explaining that? Yes, yeah. I mean, I think that they wouldn't wouldn't, uh, sort of emphasize the capacity for motherhood. Um, Maybe they don't want to talk so much about biology as maybe we would um, and sort of the need to really reverence the body as, you know, being created by God. But they would certainly say when women are mothers and choose to be mothers. I mean, it's tricky because they contradict themselves by talking about that choice to be a mother versus, you know, when we become mothers, we have those duties of care. And sometimes we don't, you know, affirmatively choose it sometimes by engaging in the act of sex, you know, by which human beings are sometimes created, a human being comes to be, and we are responsible for that child. 
child, right? So, you know, it's a little bit trickier on the edges, but yes, otherwise I think that's absolutely right is, you know, wanting to make sure that we have a caring society, one in which those duties of care that mothers and fathers have, but they would especially, I think, accentuate those that mothers have, really should be supported and encouraged both in the workplace, but also in our, in our policies as well. From your perspective, Erica, how did abortion become such a central piece of sort of modern feminism? I was at a talk at the University of Minnesota by Gloria Steinem, I don't know, maybe 18 months ago, and it eventually just devolved into kind of an anti-Catholic rant all centered around abortion, basically. And and what you t- what I took away from that was that abortion really is the life-giving sacrament of feminism. It's the blood sacrifice that gives life and freedom. It's like the anti-Eucharist on some level. It's it's not, this is my body given for you. It's, this is my body. And we look at the uh, Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings, and at the end of the day, those are all about abortion. Abortion really is this really big flashpoint. How is it that despite all the things that feminists could talk about and women could talk about who are interested in these issues, it, it always comes back to abortion on some level. What's going on there? I think a really good way of making sure people understand the contrast there is by looking at someone like Victoria Woodhill, who was a pretty radical women's rights advocate in the uh, late 19th century. But she, she was the first woman to run for president and a can- as a candidate of the Equal Rights Party, also the first woman to testify before Congress. She was a very outspoken advocate for constitutional equality for women. And yet, <laughs> here are some of the things that she said. She says, the rights of children then as individuals begin while they yet remain the fetus. She also says many women would be shocked at the very thought of killing their children after birth, but they deliberately destroy them previously. She says if there's any difference in the actual crime, we should be glad to have those who practice the latter, meaning abortion, pointed out. The truth of the matter is that it is just as much murder to destroy life in its embryonic condition as it is to destroy it after the fully developed form is attained, for it is the self-same life that is taken. Now, of course, this is as pro-life uh, an argument as you can get, right? And so here's one of like the real main suffragists, but also wanting constitutional equality for women who saw no kind of problem with being very, very much pro-life. And really, I mean, one of the reasons that those early women's rights advocates kind of talked about the need to kind of control their bodies, and they use some of that language too, but it was up against things like, you know, rape, marital rape, those types of things. And the reason they wanted to make sure that they had, quote, what they called voluntary motherhood was because they understood that the ownership of their own bodies did not, did absolutely not extend to doing what they willed with the body of another, which was their unborn child. They knew they could claim no legitimate authority to engage what in what Woodhill would call antenatal murder of undesired children. So it was very much a movement to make sure that women were not forced into motherhood, but by what? By forced sex, right? Which we would all, of course, recognize as being really the most abhorrent kind of thing that could befall a woman. So what happens in the 1970s is really quite tragic, I think. You know, there's an obvious movement for women into the workplace. They kind of capitulate, really, to the capitalistic ethic, which really is requiring unencumbered persons in the workplace to be the ones who can get promoted and have jobs and those types of things. So they basically, it's very clear that they, you know, need to, but women need to become more like men to be situated in the world of men. And so they believe that abortion is first and foremost for that kind of market equality. What's fascinating, and then I'll stop, but there's so much to say about this, is that if you look back at the 1966 
original statement of purpose for the National Organization for Women, the organization that would become the first to take on abortion on demand as central to their mission in about 1968. But two years prior, in this kind of amazing statement, which I very much agree with the vast majority of it, they don't say anything about abortion. They don't even say anything about contraception. They very much could articulate the equality of men and women and even the equal partnership of men and women in the home without talking anything about the need for abortion rights. And I think it's really brought us off course in truly recognizing the need for society to support both men and women in the really important foundational work they do, you know, taking care of their children in the home. That's a point that's often missed, that abortion and the most predatory forms of capitalism go hand in hand like peas and carrots. That's right. I think you've offered us, Erica, a good segue into your forthcoming book and what your argument is there. It's called The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision. So it sounds like you're proposing that we go back to those early feminists uh, because they have something to tell us about some of these conversations that are going on today. Yeah, that's right. I don't know if I would say go back as much as take their insights forward, but yes, that's just... Well said. Absolutely. Um, But I think one of the things that you see prior to the 1970s, and this is really in all rights theory, so this is not just with regard to women's rights, but I think it becomes, you know, abortion becomes so central to women's rights advocacy that it's almost like rights theory has to build around this kind of heinous idea that we can take the right of the child to whom we owe duties of care. Prior to that, I mean, all the way from when you ground rights in natural law, which is what rights had been always grounded in before, the idea is that rights are necessary so that we can fulfill our concrete duties to others. And it's an intellectual history. It's a big book moving from the really impressive moral vision of Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Women in the late 18th century, and really her goals for women's education and other sort of civil and political rights have really been very much fulfilled in most, like the modern democracies across the world. But her moral vision, this idea that rights are necessary to fulfill our concrete duties, to really grow in moral and intellectual excellence, that both men and women are called to that in whatever kind of realm they do their work, that vision has really been lost. And so that's what I'm trying to bring back to the forefront of these kinds of conversations and the way we think about women's rights, because I think it would do a lot of good for women generally, especially caregiving women and especially poor caregiving women who have to kind of be market equals in order to get by and then also care for their children, which is just an impossible task. We're speaking with Erica Bakiaki. She is the uh, fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and the author of the forthcoming book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, which is going to be out in July from the University of Notre Dame Press. Erica, we are, as a church, asking a lot of Catholics in the public square these days in terms of the advocacy positions we are proposing that they take in opposition to something called the Federal Equality Act, which is at the center of big debates right now. In Minnesota, there are constitutional equal rights amendments proposing equality based on gender and equality based on sex. But who's against equality? So how do we as a church and how do we as Catholics, uh, those listening to this radio show, for example, how do we oppose the Equality Act? What, what kind of messages do we need as a church and as individuals in these conversations? These are really difficult questions. 
Yes, they are. Um, you know, the first thing I would really say is it would be great if the text of the Constitution kind of explicitly recognized men and women as equals in dignity. That would be awesome. The problem is, as generations of women's rights advocates who actually fought the ERA since the 1920s have known is that the kind of strict equality that the text of the ERA, and I assume the text of the state ERAs that you're looking at, that kind of strict equality really doesn't account adequately for the very real differences between men and women. And the fact of the matter is that because the Equal Rights Amendment did not come to be for decades and decades because of these kinds of concerns, there was a movement in the early 1970s to kind of take another path, and that was a judicial path and brought about in really, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with the late Justice Ginsburg. The work she did in the 1970s to promote anti-discrimination law was really, I think, very good and very level-headed when she became, you know, the most fierce defender of abortion rights on the Supreme Court, not so much. And that's actually one of the tensions I reveal in my forthcoming book. But what is obvious here is that there's no need for the ERA because current anti-discrimination law brought into being in large part by Justice Ginsburg's advocacy as a 1970s attorney, but also by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which was an amendment to that, the Equal Pay Act, all of those kinds of legislative great wins for women. They all insist that the law treat women as individuals, that our capacity for motherhood should not legally confine us to certain roles in society. So, of course, the law can no longer say, as it once did, that women are not free to practice law, for instance. But the thing with anti-discrimination law is that it's nimble because it's dealing with cases on a case-by-case basis. So it really can recognize and allow government to make policies that do differentiate between men and women when it comes to reproduction. So, for instance, employers can offer maternity leave for women for several weeks, or employers can offer private office spaces for breastfeeding without, you know, legal complaints for men, right? But what the ERA proponents right now are trying to do, certainly this is true with the Equality Act as well, is they're trying to legislate equality on an entirely different kind of definition. It's a strict kind of equality. And really, they're trying to get abortion rights through the back door. It's one of the things that actually Justice Ginsburg, foremost among them, has always tried to ground the right to abortion in the Equal Protection Clause, because they understand very well that Roe v. Wade is really on very poor constitutional ground, as every constitutional law scholar knew when the opinion came down. So for several decades, legal scholars have been trying to ground the abortion right in equality, basically saying men and women engage in the same act. And, you know, just as men can walk away from a pregnancy, well, women should be able to, too. Of course, they discount the fact that women have to engage in this life-destroying act and imitate, like, these child-abandoning men. But so that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to get abortion as of inequality right through the back door. And then they're also trying to do this kind of trans stuff, which is just, I'm sorry, but so preposterous and really digs deeply into all those hard-won rights that I've been talking about that women have obtained over the last several decades to say that, you know, a trans-identifying male can engage on sports teams against women, young women who don't have the testosterone built up through puberty and those kinds of very real biological inequalities that are just there. So it's frustrating to see that we're trying to use equality in very different ways. But I think understanding, 
equality the way that Mary Wollstonecraft did, which is that we're, you know, we're, and this is a very Catholic way of understanding it, too, that we're all equal in dignity, because whatever our starting point in life, we all have the capacity to develop morally and intellectually. You know, she said to rise in excellence by the exercise of powers implanted for that purpose. We're all rational animals. That's where we're equal, where we have a moral equality. We actually, and we have this legal equality, but we're not the same. And it's really important for the law to recognize those things in order for women actually to be treated equally. Yeah, so modern feminism is almost pushing the eradication of women with the gender ideology stuff. It's, That's absolutely right. It's, it's kind of ironic. So you've given us some ammunition, basically, to say that these things, that the equality from the legal standpoint has been won through statutes, but these constitutional amendments are really pushing abortion and gender ideology at the end of the day, and that's why they're so aggressively advocated. Getting back to our point earlier about caregiving feminism and building common ground for the common good, where do you see from a standpoint of practical public policy solutions that we could be advocating at the state level? Where do we see that we can help women in this role as as caregiver and help families, men and women, have children, uh, care for them, and stay together? What, What kind of things should we be talking about? I actually really like the Family Security Act that Senator Romney has proposed. I don't know that it will become law, but it's a family allowance that is given to parents per child. It's a lot like the child tax credit that we have, but it's buffed up. It's more money, and it's given monthly rather than as a tax credit at the end of the year. It also is what we would call refundable, which means that it goes to people regardless if they have the taxes to pay. So it would really benefit the working poor especially and poor mothers. There's lots of debate right now about that, and I take that debate very seriously. But I think that a lot of people are saying that they're not having the number of children they would want because of financial constraints. And I think we live in a time when supposedly the economy has gotten so much better. We've had growth and GDP and all that for decades. And yet it seems like we need two wage earners in the home to be able to care for families. And that just can't be right. So there's got to be in ways in which the government can support families who are really, I think, having a hard time right now. I mean, certainly because of COVID, but also because of really low wages that have not kept up with increases in health insurance, increases in healthcare costs generally, in housing, those kinds of things, which really force a lot of primary caregivers, disproportionately women, to have to go out and work at sometimes low-wage jobs, especially among the working poor, when they would much prefer to be home with their children. Lots and lots of women would love part-time work rather than having to do full-time work. And so things like part-time pay equity, flex time, those kinds of things. Predictable schedules would be wonderful for the working poor. Lots of employers just give them their schedules less than a week in advance, and it's really hard to be able to come up with caregiving plans, especially when you don't want to send your kids to institutional daycare or you can't afford it or those kinds of things. So I like what we're starting to see, some of the discussions we're starting to see, and it's kind of across the divide. I think the left would really prefer to see lots and lots of money poured into daycare and institutional daycare. I really don't think that's what most parents want. I think there should be flexibility in how parents determine how their children should be given care. Lots of parents want to give care to their children in their own homes or ask grandparents or other family members or friends to do that. And I think that that's really an option that parents should absolutely have. So I think just much more flexibility. And and the government should be involved in this because the market really has taken a hit or has hit 
families in a hard way. And sometimes we just have to do some correcting to make sure that families can earn what the church has always called for a family wage, whether that's by increasing minimum wages and things like that, there are economic unintended consequences there, or whether it's by offering these kind of wage subsidies or help for family in other ways. I think that makes a lot of sense and is very much in keeping with Catholic teaching. Outstanding. We've heard from Erica Bakiaki today. She's clearly one of the church's most important public intellectuals on the American scene. Her forthcoming book is called The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, forthcoming in July from Notre Dame Press. Erica, where can people go to read more of your writing? You can visit the site if you type in my name, which is difficult to spell, but E-R-I-K-A and then Bakiaki, B-A-C-H-I-O-C-H-I, and you then put in the Ethics and Public Policy Center, you'll find all of my writing. Outstanding. Erica, thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to see what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? Yeah, today's question is in regard to a bill that would give undocumented immigrants in Minnesota the opportunity to become licensed drivers. We had a commenter on Facebook suggest that a driver's license is actually just a privilege for citizens and suggests instead that immigrants get an international driver's license. Jason, maybe you could fill us in more on this bill and what this license would actually provide for undocumented immigrants here in Minnesota. Sure. So the proposal to create provisional driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants has been introduced in our legislature and it's moving forward. We are grateful to legislators who are pushing this and then a broad variety of proponents, the Minnesota Agri-Growth Council, the Chamber of Commerce, the Milk Producers, Hospitality Minnesota, and the Minnesota Catholic Conference, all standing in support of this important legislation. The important thing to remember about this is that, first of all, there are non-citizens on our roads who are driving. But why this legislation is so unique is that what it does is allow undocumented persons the opportunity to drive And it creates a membrane between local law enforcement and federal immigration and customs officials. So, in other words, if you get pulled over for a traffic stop, you're not going to get caught up in the dragnet of immigrations and customs enforcement. It doesn't prevent you as an immigrant from being penalized by violating the rules of the road. It doesn't prevent law enforcement from taking you into custody if you commit a crime. And in fact, it might actually facilitate uh, local law enforcement arresting people who have committed crimes. It might facilitate people cooperating with police if they know that local law enforcement aren't going to be referring them to federal immigrations and customs enforcement. So really the important point here is that it creates that membrane between state and federal law enforcement. It's about driving, but driving in a way that if they do get pulled over, they're going to not get deported. They don't have to worry about losing their connection with their friends and family and the people around them. The reality is is that Congress has failed to act to pass comprehensive immigration reform. Maybe that dynamic is changing with a new Congress, but there are things that we can do at home here in Minnesota to help our immigrant brothers and sisters, the vast majority of whom are not going to be deported. They're here to stay, so we can either choose to allow them to linger in the shadows in fear every time they go out, or we can do a concrete thing to help them live without that fear, but still actually facilitate public safety, but also the common good. We know that insured drivers and drivers who have licenses are much less likely to be involved in fatal accidents and also more likely to be insured. So it helps the well-being of immigrants, but it also serves the common good. 
Thanks, Jason. And before we go this week, what action do we have that our listeners could take in order to start building the bridge between faith and politics? As we heard from Erica Bakiaki um, about the importance of making our voice heard on issues such as the Equality Act and constitutional equal rights amendments, these are really about importing abortion and gender ideology deeper into our law and entrenching those there. The Equality Act is a real problem. We have an action alert at mncatholic.org slash action center. Um, you can go there and click on the Act Now button and make your voice heard. Of course, human dignity is central to what we believe as Catholics. Every person is made in the image and likeness of God, but the Equality Act, far from protecting people from discrimination, it actually entrenches discrimination primarily against people of faith. For example, the Equality Act exempts itself from the Bipartisan Religious Freedom Restoration Act in an explicit and unprecedented departure from one of America's founding principles, thereby infringing on the religious freedom of others and making it more difficult for individuals to live out their faith. Catholic service and social service agencies, for example, will be deeply affected by having to follow non-discrimination principles that could do things like require that men who identify as women be allowed to stay in battered women's shelters or women's shelters, for example. These are the last place that uh, battered women want men sleeping and staying simply because of this gender ideology. Men should be put with men and women should be put with women regardless of how they identify. So it's about safety, but it's also about serving in accordance with our conscience, in accordance with our principles. We want to live out the truth of reality about who we are as male and female and the truths of our faith. So go to mncatholic.org slash action center, click on the act now button. You can learn more about this troublesome piece of legislation and how you can make your voice heard. That's all the time we have for today. For everyone listening on our podcast apps, make sure to follow or subscribe so that you always know when a new episode comes out. Then leave us a five-star rating and click share so that more folks can begin to build a bridge between faith and public life. Thanks so much for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week. I'm Jason Atkins, and for Kitsapeniac of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.